Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. And today we are talking about a Confederate general who fought here at the Battle of Franklin, General John Bell Hood. And this is a person who we talk about almost every day. Really, every every house tour that we give, we, we bring up General Hood at some point. Yes, at least once. So we're going to be doing a three-part series. We're going to talk about his life, his military career, and his legacy. This is not going to be a detailed study of every military engagement he was in. It's mostly going to be an attempt to give you a well-rounded idea of who he was as a person, how he rose up amongst the ranks, and then we'll talk about his legacy and everything after that. So we're just going to jump right into it. John Bell Hood was born on June 29, 1831 in Owingsville, Kentucky, to a Dr. John W. Hood and Theodosia French Hood. His father was a fairly well-known physician. Mm-hmm. He was well-respected in the medical community, and his father also was one of the wealthier landowners in that county, and in 1835, he owned nine slaves. And his father really wanted him to take a medical career. He even offered to pay for his schooling in Europe, but Hood had other plans. He always looked at himself as wanting to live a soldier's life. And according to his memoir, the way he phrased it, he fancied a military life from an early age. And he says that he inherited this predilection from his grandfathers who were soldiers under Washington in the Revolutionary War. For a young man who wants to have a military career, the ideal place to go would have been to West Point. Yes, and in 1849, Hood's uncle, Richard French, a prominent lawyer, slave owner, and representative from Kentucky, wrote to the U.S. Secretary of War and asked for an appointment for his nephew into West Point. He passed his entrance exams on July 1st, 1849. He had just turned 18 years old at that point, and he entered into his first year at West Point Military Academy. Three of the other students he graduated with went on to become generals in the Civil War, Philip Sheridan, James B. McPherson, and most notable for Hood's story, John M. Schofield, who will come back into play later. Yeah, he'll be a pretty major player later on. But not only was his class distinguished, but the superintendent of West Point during most of Hood's time there was Robert E. Lee. It's also, I I love this about Hood, because you can imagine him as, as the young, like having this romantic view of a soldier's life. Well, they kept the records of the books that students checked out from the library. It was a library of over 20,000 books. And in his four years at West Point, he checked out two. Not the most studious of students. (laughs) But the two that he checked out, I think, were really telling. He checked out a book by Jane Porter, which was called Scottish Chiefs, and another book by Sir Walter Scott called Rob Roy. I think Scottish Chiefs is extra interesting because it's about the Scottish knight William Wallace, who was the main character in Braveheart. And so I just like to imagine Hood as a college student with like a Mel Gibson Braveheart poster on his wall. Oh yeah, he would have totally loved that movie. But it, yeah, it does go to the fact that he's valuing, you know, this courage and bravery. For students at West Point, there were really strict rules about what students could or could not do. And some of them were pretty simple. They were things like giving and receiving money to people outside the school, drinking, alcohol use, tobacco use, uh, growing a mustache, playing pranks on each other. No, growing the mustache, the worst offense there right, is. Right, exactly. But if you broke one of these rules, you would receive a demerit. 
And if you accumulated 200 demerits in one year, it would result in your expulsion. Well, most students racked up quite a few. I mean, imagine you could rack up as many as nearly 800 by the time you graduated and still graduate just fine. Hood, in his final year, received 196 demerits. (laughs) That's a lot. But it's interesting to know, too, that most of the students were receiving a large number of demerits. It wasn't that unusual. It w- yeah, it wasn't that odd. In, in fact, when he graduated, he had received in total 374 over the course of four years, which was about average. But that record number in his final year, it seems, according to one of his classmates, it was very demoralizing and he had considered dropping out because of it. But he soldiered on, yeah, <laughs> no pun intended. It was senioritis. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, probably. He wasn't an exceptional student, but he also wasn't the worst. When he graduated in 1843, he graduated ranked 44th out of 52 students. Now, can you imagine a school today? Like, you'll give somebody valedictorian, but they don't they don't make it public knowledge who was last ranked in the class. Yeah, I don't think that my school did ranks after, like, the first, like, 10% or something right, like that. Right. You let people know who the best student was, but you also don't let it be public knowledge who was the, the very worst. But he was 44th out of 52. Now, I think it's easy to overstate that importance because it's also true that roughly half of the people who entered in for their freshman year at West Point didn't go on to graduate. So I think it's more notable just that he was a West Point graduate, not that he was... Okay. 44th out of 52 students. Yeah, because he was technically then like 44th out of 104. Roughly, yeah. I mean, you know, he he did, he graduated from the most prestigious military academy in the country. And he graduated with the rank of Brevet Second Lieutenant. After graduation, for a brief time, he was assigned to an outpost in California called Fort Jones. But he wasn't there very long. He was pretty quickly reassigned to the 2nd United States Cavalry in October of 1855. And he was sent to the Texas frontier. And I'll also add, this seems to be where Hood kind of changes from identifying as a Kentuckian to a Texan. He was assigned to Company G at Fort Mason in Central Texas. And their job was to police the area for Native Americans for Mexicans who were overstepping the bounds of the borders, and for outlaws. And for about five years, Hood rotated between different outposts in Texas. It's also during this time that he engaged in what was really his only major significant combat pre-Civil War. And it's kind of an interesting story. So on July 5th, 1857, he left Fort Mason with the command of about 25 men on a scouting expedition. They were in search of Native Americans who were in the area around the Concho River. As they were policing this area, they found a trail, which led them to believe that a group of Native Americans had passed through this area. And they followed this trail for a few days over rough terrain, and they traveled roughly 150 miles until the horses were nearly too exhausted to continue. And they pursued the natives till they had nearly reached the Mexican border. It was a pretty rough journey. I think they even ran of water almost at one point in time. 15 days into their pursuit, they hit fresh tracks, which indicated that the group of Indians they were pursuing numbered around 50. And Hood wrote that every man in his unit was armed with an army rifle, a six-shooter, a few of us had sabers and two revolvers, whilst I was armed with a double-barrel shotgun loaded with buckshot and two Navy six-shooters. 
They were well armed. They were well armed, yeah. Hood's party was nearly ready to turn back again. They had run out of water. They'd been going for a long time. When they topped a ridge and saw, about two and a half miles in the distance, some horses and a large white flag waving. Now, there was apparently some confusion for a moment because Hood had received information that they were a party of friendly Native Americans traveling through the area that would make themselves known by waving a white flag. So Hood deployed his men in a line and they began to cautiously move forward, ready to either fight or talk. And the group of Indians greatly outnumbered Hood's troops at this point in time. And as Hood's party advanced, they had 17 people. A small group of Native Americans moved forward carrying the white flag. When the two groups neared each other, the Native Americans threw down the white flag that they were holding and they also set fire to some shrub brush and foliage that was around them. And they did this to confuse Hood's horses. And then they began to shooting at the cavalrymen. Pretty soon, another group of around 30 Native Americans ambushed Hood's men and a small group mounted on horseback attacked as well. The Native American faces were painted and they wore feathers or horns on their heads and some carried rifles, but most used bows, arrows, or lances and shields made of buffalo hides. And according to one historian, squaws came up behind the warriors to encourage the men and to reload the weapons. The firefight was pretty intense and soon Hood's men were unable to reload their firearms quickly enough and they fell back about 50 yards to regroup. The cavalry men had suffered multiple casualties. One person was killed, one person was severely wounded, and another was missing. Four others had been moderately wounded, including Hood himself, who had taken an arrow to the hand. Only 11 soldiers remained unharmed, and Hood estimated that nine Native Americans had been killed, with another 10 or 12 wounded. Thankfully for Hood's men, the Native Americans did not resume their attack. The cavalrymen were able to fall back to their camp where Hood sent a messenger to a nearby fort called Fort Hudson to obtain supplies and a wagon to transport the wounded. Hood and his men regrouped for a short time at Fort Hudson and then the uninjured returned to Fort Mason. Now, the reason I wanted to tell this story was because some historians have looked at this as an early example of Hood's aggressive tendencies, particularly because this other fort was so close when Hood realized that he was approaching this group of Native Americans, he could have sent word to this fort and, and received reinforcements. His men were tired, exhausted, the horses were almost out of water. But that wasn't the kind of character that Hood had. He had his mission, his objective was right there in front of him, and he pushed towards it. Yes, plus people always say, well, they could have had reinforcements within the day. But right. I mean, this doesn't appear to last very long. What would reinforcements, you know, five hours, six hours later, what would they even have done? That's the thing. At that, at that point, the Native Americans could have been gone and it would have never been known if they let the right group through or not. In November of 1860, Hood was ordered to report for duty as an instructor at West Point. But he went to Washington and asked instead to be relieved of these duties, stating that war would soon break out between the North and South. And in his words... In which event, I preferred to be in a situation to act with entire freedom. Remember that in November of 1860, Abraham Lincoln had just been elected under a position of not allowing slavery to expand into new areas. Within a couple months, seven states have seceded from the Union. Hood returned home to Kentucky, I think, fully expecting Kentucky to secede. But they don't. And on April 16th, he makes the decision to not wait any longer, and he puts his resignation into the U.S. Army. 
He then goes to Montgomery, Alabama, which was the first capital of the Confederacy, and he offered his sword in service to the Confederate war effort. At first, he was sent as an officer to the Confederate cavalry, and in the summer of 1861, he served under Robert E. Lee in Virginia. He performed his duties as a cavalry officer very well, and it was at one point complimented by Robert E. Lee for a brilliant skirmish. And it's good to note, too, that Hood is now developing this relationship with Robert E. Lee. He has him as a superintendent at West Point. He is serving under him for a little bit when he's out on the frontier. Hood looked at Lee as kind of a mentor. Yeah, now he's serving under him, you know, in this new army, this new um, country that has just been created. In September of 1861, Hood was selected to lead a newly organized regiment called the 4th Texas Infantry as its colonel. This was a well-organized and highly trained regiment of men with varying backgrounds from all throughout the state of Texas. And the 4th Texas was part of a group of other Texas regiments referred to as the Texas Brigade. This goes back to Hood's identification as more of a Texan than a Kentuckian. He's selected to lead this group of Texans into the war. After the winter of 1861 to 1862, many of the men in, in the Texas Brigade were hoping to push further north and fight the enemy, but in March of 1862, they were ordered further south. This was a great disappointment to many, and Hood made a pretty rousing speech to his men before leaving. Hood says, Soldiers, I had hoped that when we left our winter quarters, it would be to move forward, but those who have better opportunities of judgment than we have order otherwise. You must not regard it as a disgrace. Ours is the last brigade to leave the lines of the Potomac. Upon us devolves the duty of rear guard. You are now leaving your comfortable winter quarters to enter upon a stirring campaign, a campaign which will be filled with blood and fraught with the destinies of our young confederacy. Its success or failure rests upon the soldiers of the South. They are equal to the emergency. I feel no hesitation in predicting that you, at least, will discharge your duties, and when the struggle does come, that proud banner you bear— will be found in the thickest of the fray. Fellow soldiers, Texans, let us stand or fall together. And the men cheered. And on the first day of the march, they came to a deep creek, and the men were reluctant to cross. Hood waded into the water first and shouted, Come on, men, right through. It's not deep. And the men cheered again. <laughs> and they followed. They were marching to a new campsite in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And on the way, orders were received promoting John Bell Hood as the new leader of the Texas Brigade. It's not known the exact reason why Hood was elevated over his peers now. Now, he certainly was not a poor soldier, but he hadn't done anything yet to distinguish himself from other officers of higher rank. It's likely that this was the simple fact that Hood was a West Point graduate, and the other officers were not. But Hood was elevated to brigade command. Shortly after Receiving this new position, his men presented him with a gift. Yeah, a horse. The men say to Hood, In you, sir, we recognize a soldier and gentleman. In you we have found a leader whom we are proud to follow, a commander whom it is a pleasure to obey. When going into battle, we will look to you for your commanding form and this proud steed as our guide. And gathering there, we will conquer or die. Hood immediately leapt onto, onto this new horse and he gave his thanks. And he told the men that they should not look in vain for a rallying point when the struggle came. And of course, the struggle does come. His brigade grew in reputation really quickly. They were often tasked with leading aggressive assaults. 
and Hood was known to enter into the thick of the fighting right alongside his men. And Hood distinguished himself by playing a critical role in three of the most significant battles of the Civil War. So on June 27, 1862, it was the third day of the Seven Days Battle, and the Texas Brigade participated in the Battle of Gaines Mill. This battle, as you, as you listen through this part, keep this in mind when we talk about the Battle of Franklin later on, because what happens in Gaines Mill is eerily similar to what ends up happening in the Battle of Franklin. Hood's brigade went into combat under direct orders from Robert E. Lee, and the Texas Brigade was tasked with assaulting the federal defenses on Turkey Hill. To do this, the Texans would have to charge across a few hundred yards of open fields, which was already littered with the remains of dead and wounded soldiers and horses. They had to ford through a shallow swamp and climb across trees which had been chopped down as obstacles all the while taking fire from northern sharpshooters and 18 pieces of artillery. After all that, they then had to fight through two lines of entrenched federal inf infantry with no artillery support of their own. And to top all that off, Hood's brigade began this assault about 30 minutes before sunset. That sounds oddly familiar. It's almost the exact story of the Battle of Franklin. The Texas brigade performed this very well. They saved the day for the Confederates. It was a costly assault, though, for the Texas Brigade. His men suffered 572 casualties, with the 4th Regiment, his old unit alone, accounting for 253. Roughly half of the men in the 4th Texas were killed, wounded, or captured, and many of its officers were casualties as well. The Texas Brigade, not only at this battle, but throughout their whole life, seems to be always put in those hard positions, and they seem to take a very, very significant percentage of casualties all the time. It was something that affected Hood. After this battle, it was reported that Hood wept when he realized how many of his men were gone. But this battle greatly enhanced Hood's reputation, and a month later, Hood was put in charge of a second brigade, so kind of a mini-division. Hood led a division into the Battle of Second Bull Run, under the command of General Longstreet. And on August 30th, 1862, Hood's Texas Division led a massive assault of nearly 25,000 men in one of the largest charges of the Civil War. Which he described as the most beautiful battle scene I have ever beheld. Again, the Texas Brigade lost nearly half of its men, and Hood's division suffered over 900 casualties. But yet again, they performed very well, and his reputation grew more. There's a great story right after this battle, actually in the midst of this battle. So on, on that day, on mm -hmm. August 30th, Hood's division traveled through an area that was under the command of another brigade commander named General Evans. And while moving through this area, Hood's men captured several federal ambulances. So they, they captured some northern supplies, and General Evans ordered that Hood turn them in to Evans, which of course Hood refused. He's like, why would I do that? My men captured them, not yours. Why would I give them over to you? Well, Evans, who had authority in this area, arrested Hood, who was then removed of command for a short time. And this was just for a few weeks. Hood was, he wasn't like locked in a cell. He just had to march at the rear of his men rather than the front, and he couldn't lead him into battle. But the Texas Brigade did not like this at all. Their leader has been taken from them, this guy that they've respected so much that they bought a horse for. At one point, as his men marched past Robert E. Lee, they shouted to General Lee, give us Hood. If there is any fighting to be done by the Texas Brigade, Hood must command it. So Lee, 
offers to release Hood if he would issue an official statement of regret. But Hood refused. Right. And that doesn't matter, though, because Lee eventually agrees to release Hood anyway. Right. I just love that story. He's like, no, I'm not apologizing. <laughs> A short time later in September, September 17th of 1862, Hood's division fought well again, this time in the Battle of Antietam. And of course, again, their losses were extremely high, but his men performed their duty very well. They held off Lee's army from complete destruction. After this battle, Lee approached Hood and asked where his division was. And the legend has it that Hood's response was, they're lying on the field where you sent them. My division has been almost wiped out. Because of these actions, Hood was recommended for promotion by Stonewall Jackson. And this letter that we're going to read he refers to the Battle of Antietam as the Battle of Sharpsburg. Jackson's letter of recommendation read, I respectfully recommend Brigadier General J.B. Hood be promoted to the rank of Major General. He was under my command during the engagement along the Chickahominy, commencing on June 27th last, when he rendered distinguished service. Though not of my command in recently hard-fought battle near Sharpsburg, Maryland, yet for a portion of the day I had occasion to give directions respecting his operations, and it gives me pleasure to say that his duties were discharged with such ability and zeal as to command my admiration. I regard him as one of the most promising officers in the army. In the fall of 1862, Robert E. Lee reorganized the Army of Northern Virginia, and on October 10th, Hood was officially made a major general in charge of a division of four brigades in the First Corps. At 31 years old, he was the youngest of Lee's nine major generals. Let's just pause for a moment from Hood's story to talk about what being in charge of a division actually means. That's a good idea. So an army is divided into at least two corps. And a corps is divided at least into two divisions. So Hood has now reached division command. Now, the step lower than that is a division is composed of at least two brigades. Hood's division has four brigades, which means at this point, he's in charge of at least eight to 10,000 men. He has risen from regimental command to brigade command, now to division command, and he only has two spots left to go to attain the highest rank that one could get. This was the largest number of men Hood had yet to command, and in the winter of 1862 to 1863, Hood would face a brand new challenge, administration. Right. Hood was a, Hood was a battle commander, but going into that winter, he now has to face different responsibilities than he's faced so far. In fact, that winter, his division was reprimanded for having dirty camps and the men having mixed arms rather than all carrying the same weapons. And in April of 1863, portions of Hood's men were charged with protecting Fort Huger along the James River in Virginia. In a small scuffle, the fort was lost to federal soldiers, and this became kind of a blemish on Hood's otherwise pretty pristine military record up until this point. And his men took this kind of seriously. Blame was passed around between the men and his division. And at one point, things got so heated that there was a duel between a small number of officers. Now, no one was injured, but dueling was forbidden. There was a large crowd in attendance, and word had spread around the camp. So this means one of two things. Either Hood knew that this duel was taking place and didn't stop it, or he was unaware of it when he pretty clearly should have been. I lean towards more of the didn't stop it, because he seems to be no pretty heavy on honor, and dueling 
is mainly about honor. Right. That is kind of speculation, but I don't see him being somebody who'd be too ticked off about his men getting in a duel, especially when they had just lost one of their first uh, responsibilities. You blow off some steam. So let's kill each other. (laughs) (laughs) After the death of Stonewall Jackson in May of 1863, Robert E. Lee seriously considered placing Hood in command of a corps, but decided to go with an older soldier named General A.P. Hill. Lee did have positive things to say about Hood, though. He stated that he was a capital officer who was improving and will make a good corps commander if necessary. On July 2nd, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, Hood was severely wounded while his men charged toward the Federal defenses. A shell exploded and shrapnel ripped through his left hand, forearm, elbow, and biceps. Hood was pulled from the field and brought to a hospital. His wound was very severe, but they were able to save his arm from amputation, although it was never fully mobile again. Hood was brought from Gettysburg to Stanton, Virginia, and then he was taken to the Confederate capital of Richmond to recover. Hood returned to command his division just in time to participate in the Battle of Chickamauga on September 18th through the 20th. With the men in his division lined up and ready to march, Hood rode up and down the line to rally his men. This was the first time many of them had seen him since his arm injury. Orders prevented the men from cheering, but the men waved their hats as Hood passed by. Shortly after the attack began, Hood rode to the Texas Brigade to rally them forward. He was reaching for their battle flag when he was struck by a bullet in his right leg, and he fell from his horse into the arms of one of his aides. And Hood was placed in the stretcher, but he refused to be taken from the field until he was sure his men had gotten their assault underway. And after being taken from the battlefield and brought to a hospital, surgeons concluded that the leg would need to be amputated. Hood told the doctors, I'm in your hands, gentlemen. Do as you think best. The leg was removed from the thigh down, and Hood was taken to a private residence to recover under the care of John Darby, his division's chief medical officer. And by this time of the war, amputations were pretty commonplace. People had gotten pretty good at them, and recovery rates were surprisingly high. An amputation on the upper third, though, was incredibly risky, and only about half survived. In late September, while Hood was convalescing from his wounds, newspapers began reporting on his injury, and they started reporting that he had died. But he didn't. (laughs) But he didn't. (laughs) He recovered rapidly. And by October 8th, he was asking about when he could return to duty. By late October, he was ready to travel. In mid-November, he arrived to convalesce in Richmond, Virginia, where he spent about three months in the winter of 1863 to 1864. And Hood would have been a rock star in Virginia at this point in time. It's like, here's a hero of the Confederacy, returned to to the capital city, bad arm injury, missing leg. Like, nobody was cooler than him at that point. Yeah, and he seems to be, from all descriptions, a pretty dashing guy. After it was known that he survived, the men in the Texas Brigade raised over $3,000 in a single day to purchase Hood a prosthetic leg, which had to be smuggled into the country from Europe. Yes, yeah, so quite, quite impressive. Because remember, at this point in time, they have now bought him a horse and a leg. Right. One of the men in his brigade said, I want old Hood to know that hereafter he must curb his impetuosity and stay further in the rear. He order know he can't do any good to them Yankees if he keeps on like he's been doing. It'll bust this old brigader buying horses and legs for him. 
Was that pretty good? That was pretty good, Brian. Thanks. <laughs> I love the accent. Well, that's how it's written. I know. While he recovered in Richmond, Hood resumed a courtship with a young woman named Sally Buchanan Preston, whose nickname was Buck. And this was not the first time the two had met. Earlier that year, Hood's division was stationed near Richmond. He met and grew infatuated with Buck, although she apparently didn't really return his affection. No, and, and nor was Hood the first soldier to seek her affections. Uh, in fact, she had a bit of a reputation for having soldiers profess love for her, only to be killed in battle shortly thereafter. <laughs> Maybe that's why Hood got shot in the leg. Who knows? While he was recovering in Richmond from his arm wound a few months before, Hood proposed to Buck. And in his own words, he said that she half promised me to think of it. She would not say yes, but she did not say no. That is not exactly. But when he left Buck, he said, I'm engaged to you. And she responded with, I'm not engaged to you. <laughs> Classic witty comeback. I know, right? So now with Hood recovering from his leg amputation, things start to look a little bit more promising. And before he left Richmond, she agreed to marry him. One other relationship that Hood developed while in Richmond was with President Jefferson Davis. Which was probably a little bit more significant in the long run. Yes, it, it probably was. Because Hood recovered relatively quickly, and by early January, he was accompanying President Jefferson Davis on horse rides throughout the capital city. There are a few occasions where Davis allowed Hood to make use of the presidential carriage. It was a big deal, too. I mean, imagine, that's like... That's like showing up somewhere and you were allowed to use Air Force One. You know, like yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> it's that's a pretty, pretty big major. deal. But I feel like, I mean, he was missing a leg. Yeah, so that's maybe Davis just had sympathy for him, but he just he just befriended the president of the Confederacy. While Hood recovered in Richmond, he was given a promotion by Jefferson Davis, which was confirmed by Confederate Congress, and his promotion was Lieutenant General, which was the second highest rank in the Confederate Army. So now that means that Hood would be commanding a corps. The only position left above that would be full general, meaning army command. The only problem was that there were no corps commander positions available in the Army of Northern Virginia. So instead, Hood would command a corps in the Army of Tennessee, which was led by General Joseph E. Johnston. Some historians have wondered why Hood was given this promotion, alleging that he had befriended Jefferson Davis for the specific purpose of being promoted, or that Davis had showed him preferential treatment. In one book written about Hood, it's just called John Bell Hood and the War for Southern Independence. The author, whose name is McMurray, sums this up pretty well. He said, There was a perfectly logical reason for Davis to promote Hood. In the winter of 1863 and 64, there was no major general in the Confederacy whose record was even remotely comparable to Hood's. No other living officer had so often led troops who turned the tide of battle. On every field where Hood had gone into action, save Fredericksburg, where his lines were not directly assailed, and Gettysburg, where he was disabled shortly after entering the fight, he had been magnificent. Gaines Mill, 2nd Manassas, Antietam, and Chickamauga. In these battles, Hood's role had been crucial. Jackson, Lee, Longstreet, and Bragg had all praised him, and the last three had either specifically recommended his promotion to lieutenant general or were on record that he would make a good corps commander. By all logic, Hood was the best possible choice. 
In late February 1864, Hood took command of a corps in the Army of Tennessee in Dalton, Georgia. Hood's relationship with Joseph Johnston, his commanding officer, was positive at first, with the two generals going out for rides together, conversing, and enjoying a great deal of popularity amongst the men. Hood exchanged letters with President Davis, too, giving him direct updates on the status of the army and his ideas of what he thought should happen. These letters, although civil and not directly critical of Johnston, certainly painted Hood as a person who had the right answers. Throughout the spring of 1864, Johnston repeatedly failed to take decisive action against the federal forces under General Sherman that threatened the Atlanta area, preferring to pull back to safety rather than engage the enemy directly. In April of 1864, Hood's letters to the Confederate authorities in Richmond turned more critical of Johnston's leadership. And the subtext of these letters was essentially, I think it would be a good idea for us to act more aggressively, but Johnston seems to think otherwise. There seems to be some debate among historians if this was Hood maneuvering for the army to be placed into his own hands, or if he was legitimately critical of Johnston, or maybe no, it was both. But this failure to act aggressively went directly against Hood's character. He had risen in the ranks in the army thus far because he showed such willingness to fight. Despite Hood's letters to Richmond, he and Johnston remained on friendly terms. During the spring months, Hood's health continued to improve, and it was mentioned that he could be out nearly every day and rides from 12 to 15 miles and 20 miles without dismounting. The men in Hood's corps continued to respect him during his few months in command. His men believed him to be a fine-looking officer, and they began calling him Old Pegleg. Which I think they meant as a term of endearment. I think so, too, because Pegleg, by itself, is a bit insulting. Right. Through April and May of 1864, the Army of Tennessee maneuvered around northern Georgia, trying to prevent Sherman's Federal Army from approaching Atlanta. But Johnston still failed to meet Sherman in a large open battle, preferring instead to rely on a series of strategic retreats. He would have the army fall back to a defensible position and hope that Sherman would attack. But Sherman never fell for it, and he continued to push closer and closer to Atlanta. Johnston seemed to trust Hood greatly during this campaign, and at times he would put Hood in command of nearly the entire army of Tennessee. In late May, the relationship between Hood and Johnston began to sour. The two were rarely seen together, unless it was in a group with others involved. Now, as this was playing out, the leaders in the Confederate government were losing faith in General Joseph E. Johnston. He had given over much of northern Georgia to the Federal Army. He had pretty much given up completely on Tennessee, and he had allowed Sherman's forces to march within a few miles of Atlanta. Many urged that Johnson should be replaced with a general who would put up a fight for Atlanta. President Davis sent a telegram to Robert E. Lee, Hood's old mentor and instructor at West Point, saying, Johnston has failed and there are strong indications that he will abandon Atlanta. It seems necessary to relieve him at once. Who should succeed him? What think you, Hood, for the position? Lee responded with, it is a bad time to release the commander of an army situated as that of Tennessee. We lose Atlanta and the army too. Hood is a bold fighter. I am doubtful as to his other qualities necessary. On July 14th, Hood met with General Braxton Bragg, who was acting as a war advisor to President Davis. Hood gave 
General Bragg his note. And part of this note reads, I have, General, so often urged that we should force the enemy to give us a battle as to almost be regarded as reckless by the officers high in rank in this army, since their views have been directly opposite. I regard it as a great misfortune to our country that we fail to give battle to the enemy many miles north of our present position. Please say to the present that I should continue to do my duty cheerfully and faithfully and strive to do what I think is best for our country as my constant prayer is for our success. Now, it's hard to read that letter and not assume that Hood was lobbying for army command, especially his statement about the officers high in rank having opposite views. These seem to be not only criticisms of Johnston, but a way to make himself look like the only viable alternative. Braxton Bragg also sent word to Davis saying, if any change is made, Hood would give unlimited satisfaction, and my estimate of him, always high, has been raised by his conduct in this campaign. Do not understand me as proposing him as a man of genius or a great general, but as far better in this present emergency than anyone we have available. On the evening of July 17, 1864, General Johnston received a telegram, which stated, Lieutenant General John Bell Hood has been commissioned to the temporary rank of general. I am directed by the Secretary of War to inform you that as you have failed to arrest the advance of the enemy to the vicinity of Atlanta, far in the interior of Georgia, and express no confidence that you can defeat or repel him, you are hereby relieved from the command of the Department and Army of Tennessee, which you will immediately turn over to General Hood. At 33 years old, the gallant Hood of Texas, as he was known, became the youngest full general in the Confederacy and the commander of the Army of Tennessee. Much of northern Georgia was already lost to federal forces, Tennessee was under northern control, and Sherman's army was nearly at the gates of Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to part one of our podcast on General John Bell Hood. We're going to be continuing this series in two weeks with part two, and it will continue Hood's story through the Nashville campaign and the end of his life. And then two weeks after that, we'll conclude with our final episode about Hood and his legacy. If you've enjoyed this series, or if you're enjoying the beginning of this series, feel free to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, send us an email at podcast at boft.org. And if you want to follow along with updates from what we're doing and of pictures from what we're talking about in this podcast, follow us on Instagram at boft1864. And if you would like to support us in a more monetary fashion, check out our store. We have some really cool t-shirts. It's pretty easy to get to. Just go to um, store.boft.org. And also, if you're wanting to read a book that can go along with what we're talking about here today, I recommend the book John Bell Hood and the War for Southern Independence. I think that'll be my recommendation for this week. So thank you so much for listening. Come out for a tour at Carter House or Carnton if you want to hear more about your local history and support what we do here. But thank you so much.